Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Aaron Barra. But first, a message on behalf of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. When COVID-19 hit, the doors to independent venues across the country closed. Attending live concerts stopped. Now, independent venues and promoters from every state in the U.S. are banding together to fight for survival. These venues were the first to close and they'll be the last to reopen. And the fact is many of them, our neighborhood venues, are at risk of closing their doors forever. More information is available online. Just seek out and follow the hashtag SaveOurStages. This message is brought to you by Neva, a 501c6. Erin Bear is an authoritative voice in music, tech, and education. She's also the freshly minted director of popular music at Arizona State University. She's the executive director of Beats by Girls and a course developer for Berkeley Online, as well as being a former associate professor at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Aaron's work as a community organizer includes the aforementioned Beats by Girls, as well as being on the board of Women in Music. Aaron's very modern career in music really serves to exemplify the multiple paths to carving out a sustainable life in the arts. And now, my discussion with Aaron Barra. Thank you for tolerating that for a moment. I'm, <laughs> usually, I'm not as uh, I'm not as uh, technically illiterate, and now I'm embarrassed because I have the uh, the digital workstation professional guru here in front of me, and I'm uh, <laughs> I'm fumbling. <laughs> Zoom Zoom will get all of us, no matter what our jobs are. <laughs> um, well, thank you for making time. How are you? Of course, I'm good. Thank you for having me. I I appreciate being here. Yeah. How are you holding up during the um the new times? I mean, all things considered, I think pretty good. I just took a new, I got a new job. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thanks. So it's good. You know, I got a job. I bought a home. Things. I'm, I'm doing all those things that I think a lot of people maybe aren't doing right now, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> but uh, there's just a lot going on, so I'm hanging in there. Where are you based? Well, I just moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Um AKA like the oven of America. <laughs> I was going to say, are you doing all these other things people aren't doing? You're going to Phoenix in the summer. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it was just time. So I took, I just took the director of popular music position at Arizona State University. Oh, so I left Berkeley from a faculty perspective. I still very much work for them <laughs> just remotely now. And I'm now based in Arizona, starting on my own brand new program here. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. What can you share about the program? Director of Popular Music sounds um, like a cool thing. Well, it's Arizona State's kind of first foray into any contemporary programming. They, they've got these just like hugely robust, more conservatory-centric programs like musicology, uh, conducting, orchestral performance, stuff like that. Um, this is brand new and... They're, you know, they're funding it at a really serious amount. So they're, they're, they're dedicated to this. And there's a brand new building opening up 2021 with studios that are, you know, done by 
Walter Stork Design, which is like one of those preeminent people. So they've they're putting together this brand new facility and. I mean, the way I would describe it is that if, if anybody's familiar with Berklee College of Music, which is where I came from before, it's a lot like Berklee, except much less specialized and no competition for resources between d different departments. So it's, it's more of like a holistic approach to understanding that when people leave the four walls of the institution that they've studied at, they end up doing myriad things, right? Like careers as musicians are a collage of writing, producing, performing, management, education, you know, and that's, that's true of almost every single alumni from any music institution that you're piecing together some sort of a career inside of a volatile industry. So instead of getting highly specialized, which is what I did when I was a student at Berkeley, um, you know, I, I, got, I got a degree in songwriting and piano performance, only to find that I was relatively unemployable <laughs> upon graduation. So, you know, we're just trying to say, this is the reality. Plan A is, you know, many things, the sum of many things. And so instead of kind of approaching it that like, this is your one few study and this is what success is narrowly defined as, let's take a look at it in the abstract and say, you're gonna need to know a lot of things. So let's learn a bunch of stuff and let's get out there and let's start working. That's a very exciting approach to hear about because I've, I've spoken with so many people who've gone through various aspects of music school. Um, I, when I was younger, I, I looked at audio engineering as a potential career path. And so often, um, just to sort of mirror back what I think you're saying, you can go through these programs, leave with a degree, but it's not like there's a defined career path. You don't get you know, it's not like you got your MBA and now you're getting recruited by an accounting firm or you you did your JD and now all the law firms are clamoring for parallel, you know, clamoring for first years. You still end up a lot of times going in and making the coffee and sweeping the floor <laughs> kind of thing, um, competing with people who don't necessarily have the academic degree or credentials. They they just have the aptitude or the drive. Like it's a the the academic qualification wasn't always, um, I don't want to say a guarantee of anything, but it wasn't always the differentiator. It wasn't always the credential you needed um, in a lot of these fields. So I, it's, it's really, um, really kind of neat to hear a bit of a more holistic um, mindset going into it. What will your role be? Are you designing the curriculum or like what, 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 what will, what, what's your seat at the table? So I'm, I'm the program director, founding director. So, you know, I was handed a certain amount of things uh, incoming as any institution would have, you know, they had to have a whole entire multi-year process to get this program approved before they did a search for a director. So now I'm just taking what I was given and kind of figuring out where things need to pivot and adjust and hire, propose, advocate. It's, it's a lot of leadership, really. But... Um, you know, I, I'm going to get down into the nitty gritty to some, to some degree, but then I'm also sort of looking forward <laughs> to, to not having to get so deeply entrenched in that, that curricular design. Cause that's what I've been doing for so long. And I really am, I'm ready to empower some other people to, to do their due diligence now here. <laughs> very, very well said. All right. Well, if, if you don't mind, would you set the table for me and help me and listeners understand 
what's your journey been to this position and um, what makes you um, the right person to be the director of a popular music program? Oh man. I mean, I would, I would sum it up as just non-linear. <laughs> there, there's no, like, when you when you think about my career path, it, none of it makes any sense, which I guess is true of many people in the type of, like, executive level position. But I, um, you know, I, I always just wanted to be an artist. And yeah. so after I left Berkeley the first time, I moved to New York and was pretty narrowly focused on being a singer songwriter and quickly realized that I didn't like I wasn't in control because I didn't know how to use technology in order to leverage my vision right so I ran into a lot of obstacles that were mostly financial because you had to pay somebody else to operate a computer in order to make music yeah. um, and then also just in terms of matching what was coming out of you know my my what I was hearing in my head with what we were making was not happening. So, you know, I then decided that I was gonna just figure it out. So it was a couple years of really difficult self-learning, self-guided learning process. And luckily it was right at that time when just an immense amount of tutorial content made its way onto the internet, right? <laughs> but it was, really not as good as it is today. It was just like weird people in their basements making videos that they're like, the spirit of the information was there, but it wasn't necessarily <laughs> correct. So I spent years just like interpolating sources and resources in order to execute ideas. And that was just this rabbit hole for me where once I, once I got my head around the ideas and the tools, I, I started viewing them in a really creative sense as opposed to a technical sense. So I got really into the tech and that was from a production standpoint, but then also from a songwriter to electronic singer songwriter, where I was using synthesizers and doing all that stuff on stage. And then I started working for different music tech companies. I think that what I was doing was novel in some way, only that I was completely oblivious to what anybody else was doing. <laughs> um, and there weren't a lot of you know, young females adopting the technology in that format at that time. So um, it just, I became visible in that arena and started working for companies like Ableton and Isotope and Moog and, you know, things that I would have killed to have the opportunity to do, you know, previous to that, it's like all of a sudden this good stuff started happening. And then I started to understand more about how corporate entities work and working for companies and manufacturing and development. And I learned a lot about that process, started teaching other people how to do what I was doing. Basically, you know, it's like sales is very much like being an evangelist in some way. And I was just kind of like preaching the gospel of tech music technology from this, from the standpoint of creativity. And uh, it was, it was just working out for me. And then, one day I got a call from somebody at Berkeley saying, you know, we really need somebody who understands songwriters and technology to come up here and take the lead on, on what we're doing in that regard. So will you come? And next thing I knew I was teaching formally wow. <laughs> at Berkeley. And so I spent, you know, six years there really in the trenches, like rebuilding from base level up, um, you know, how we were approaching technology and, had a had a lot of impact you know and then through that got more involved in the leadership stuff that was happening at berkeley and 
I learned so much from those six years at that institution. So, you know, in some ways, I think why this next move made a lot of sense is that I'm able to take everything that was fantastic about the Berkeley experience, bring that with me, and then take all the stuff that was not working because they're just so deeply rooted in this tradition and investment of, you know, 60, 70 years of stuff. <laughs> they're not able to be agile in that way. So I'm able to like get rid of the stuff that wasn't working, take the stuff that is working, and then also draw from my own experience of what being a working musician in the industry is actually like, and, you know, apply that from a leadership role. Historically, how progressive is a place like Berkeley when it comes to the embrace of technology? Oh, I mean, hi highly progressive. Yeah. I think that they're, they're right up at that bleeding edge in some degree. You know, I think academia, just the nature of it is glacial. <laughs> it, you know, the pace at which things develop. They're, they're faster than a lot of institutions, but I don't think anybody's like right up there with what's happening if you're not a research institution, which Berkeley is not. Um, but you know, they're, they're, from my perspective, they're, they're, they're in the lead. From the perspective of integrating the, the modern tools and the, and the modern toolbox into the curriculum and into the institution. Okay. Um, when you were working for the equipment manufacturers or the software manufacturer, when you're on sort of in your, in your corporate, uh, <laughs> in your corporate days, there was something you alluded to, even in your time in New York, that there wasn't a lot of visibility or a lot of uh, female representation around the technology um, of being a, a, a singer songwriter, being a performer and creator. And I just wanted to, I wanted to pursue that a little bit with you. When, when you were in the corporate world, were you, was your role to be an evangelist or to conduct outreach specifically to that constituency, that audience? Or did you have that as a personal mission? Like, how, how did that inform your work? I mean, I, I think that I kind of came into the realization of it a bit later. Like, I was just in the act of doing, and then maybe a few years down the road was realizing, you know, who I was reaching and why I was reaching them. And the people that I was working for knew, right? But I was quite young when this happened to me. I was like 24, 23 when I started doing some of these things. And I just didn't get it at the time. I very much make a, a, con a concerted effort to reach not just women, but all marginalized people in the music technology space. You know, I, I in, a, in addition to being the director at Arizona State, I'm the executive director of a, not a very large nonprofit called Beats by Girls, mm -hmm. which we have chapters all over the world. And, um, you know, I think that, I don't know if you, there's this term that I've been throwing around all the time. I'm trying to get everybody to start talking about it, but it's called technology justice. Um, and in that, as, as it means that, you know, the future of all of our fields are going to be impacted by technology, right? Very much the music industry, but this, no one will remain untouched by the, you know, undaunting movement of technology and, and it's, you know, very rapid evolution. And the people that have access to the technology have the understanding of its underlying functionality and how it works and are just culturally encouraged to engage with it. Those are the people that are powerful, right? And historically, that space has been occupied by a really specific type of person. 
almost at that one percenter level, right? It's, it's also, you know, marginalized people in the much more broad sense as well. So beginning, I was just doing things so that I was excited about them. And that's why people wanted to hire me because this was just this like genuine excitement. Um, but then I realized how much of an impact I was having on people that saw themselves reflected in who I was. And now it's just like the, one of the main things I focus on. I, I like that. I like the the notion of um, of technology justice. I, I I've recently come across the concept of environmental justice around cleanup and like Superfund and EPA you know related matters, and how as part of the cleanup process, I guess it was started under Clinton, expanded a bit under Obama, and as you might imagine, rolled back a little bit um, over the last few years. But the notion that the impacted um, constituents and all the stakeholders would be represented and help shape a cleanup effort around an environmental, um, you know, specifically like Superfund sites. Up here in Seattle, it would mean not only industry and sports, you know, sports fishermen and commercial fishers, native peoples, recreational users of the waterways, marginalized ethnic groups that might be, that might have like some level of subsistence reliance on the waterway. It's just really, really fascinating. And so to relate that um, a bit to the notion of, of, of technology justice, I wonder what, how does that manifest? I guess access would, in education is sort of, I don't want to say obvious, but an obvious manifestation. But does it also come into interface design or the usability of the tools? Like, is there a gender bias in the tools themselves? I mean, I, I say, I think so for sure. I think it, it's as broad as like access to broadband, right? Like that's technology justice on like to, to make a correlation to your kind of cleanup example. I've heard arguments that algorithms that are, algorithms themselves are biased, right? Like certain algorithms, if somebody who's generating it or creating it is coming from one perspective, then they might not be able to take in decision making or any of the other variables that will affect how a, the processes of an algorithm, right? So in that in that sense, I think user interface absolutely, you know, yeah. just it's it's hard to like pinpoint or talk about those things in the specific. But it's easier to think about them in the general terms about like who makes technology for who and how does it operate for those people, right? That's fair. That's fair. Tell me a bit about Beats by Girls. What was the genesis of that? What's the mission and mandate? And what are some of the activities around the organization? So we started in 2013. Um, and this was right around that time when I was kind of transitioning away from working for other corporate entities and starting to be more on the education side. Like I just I had said that I didn't really get it at the time, like why people were hiring me and why this was working so well. Um, and then I started to figure it out. It's like, oh, I get that there's not a lot of people like me in this space. I represent user groups that people want to tap into. Um, people, I'm like having an actual impact on other people's lives just by being myself. You know, I, I didn't really feel like it was a radical thing. And then at, at one point I, I realized that, you know, this is why people were responding to me was almost more about who I was as opposed to the kind of music that I was making, you know, like that was radical, me being myself. Um, but I didn't get it for a long time. And then finally, it's just like, all right, if this is, if this is what people think about me, then why don't I try except embracing that 
that and seeing what happens. And I mean, literally there was like a pre Beats by Girls part of my life and <laughs> everything else that's happened to me since has been, you know, because of that in a way. So we just, you know, we decided to try to raise some money in order to put together. And, and originally it was just going to be some online assets, like a course. And this is back when like not a lot of courses online existed. It's like funny to say that now because everything's happening on the internet. But um, you know, we started to fundraise. And even before we were done fundraising, we were beyond funded and incubated in a physical space in New York City as well. Wow. So, you know, it just... It's like I hit on something that made a lot of sense to a lot of people. And now, so when we're seven years later, I think this year we'll have our like 25th through 30th chapter open. And, you know, what we really do is help regional groups of women help themselves. You know, they're all kind of meeting you. We, we meet them where they're at, you know, and that's a variation or on a spectrum of access to resources, underlying knowledge. So we do everything from teacher training to micro fundraising, asset development, content creation, just everything that they need in order to mobilize and start doing programming in their own area. So, you know, there's a lot happening from the global perspective, which is, you know, a group of women helping other women. And then on the regional level, these chapters, they do everything from weekly after school programming to meetups to uh, you know workshops master classes they do all sorts of stuff and you know they are helping the other women in their own community as well so it's this kind of wonderful feedback loop of sharing power i guess is is really what it is and you know we're we're getting better and better at it each year that's for sure that's incredible and the chapters are are they um they sell are they self sufficient units and then at the organization level are you like taking best practices out of one chapter and trying to disseminate them elsewhere like how does the how does the organization sort of work functionally? They're autonomous to some degree. I mean, they're licensing our brand and our curriculum, so like we have IP and brand relationships that are pretty clear mm -hmm. and. Um, we communicate with them often. So we're always like saying, how can we support you? And then we do a lot of sharing. We have like quarterly, I think actually we're doing it every month now where all the chapters get on together and we highlight one. So they all get to learn from each other and they get to decide, you know, what's going to work for their community. And then we are, you know, saying, okay, this, there's a need for this. So let's do content development in this area, or this isn't working for these people. Let's create solutions for them and then give that to everybody, right? So it is this sort of, like, we, we are amalgamating, or like in interpolating best practices and, and sharing them, but we're not necessarily like, there's no mandate, right? <laughs> it's like, here's the vibe, here's our general standard operating, do you wanna do this? Let's start having conversations. And then if it seems feasible, you know, we move forward with them and then we just keep supporting them. Yeah. And then they all together get to, we, they get to share resources and support each other as well. What's the size of a typical chapter? Oh, it varies. You know, in in Copenhagen, for instance, they they're one of the best funded. <laughs> they they are like masterful fundraisers. So they've, I think they've got three women who work full time just teaching and doing all those things, and then they're running all sorts of programs all year long. So you know, they might they might reach a couple hundred people. Um, whereas in Columbus, Ohio, 
where it's a really small community and they're, you know, they're in a different type of facility, they're doing classes that are like six to 10 girls one day a week for 12 weeks. And then maybe they do that twice. So maybe they only reach 24 people. Um, and then, you know, their budgets reflect that. It's like a comp- it, it totally expands and contracts to meet the needs of the community. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, tell me a little bit about how, um, how, do you, how do you manage and integrate your various lives and activity, um, mm. your creativity, your sort of administrative executive roles, your cause-related work? Um, how, do, how, do you, how do you keep it all moving? You know, I get asked this question a lot um, because I think at face value, it looks like I'm doing a million things, right? Um, and, and I guess to some degree that that, that is true. I mean, I, I think that it's a few factors. The first is that I just don't waste time. And, and this is something that I think anybody who's had to live life as a freelancer and like hustle understands that this is just something you develop over time, right? Where it's like, if you're not doing something, then you're not making money because nobody's paying you to sit on your ass, you know? Not, not that's what happens in regular jobs, but to some degree, it's like you can kind of take a breath if you have a salaried position, right? And as a freelancer, I just did not have that experience. And so, like the hustle is real. Let's just let's start there. <laughs> I'm just I'm not one to I'm not one to like sit around and watch TV, you know, or like binge watch a series. I, I just I can't even pay attention to TV. I because I am so distracted by my work and and in some ways it's like this unhealthy like American standard millennial thing, you know. So part of it's good, part of it's bad. Um, but then as as different parts of my career have sort of, you know, come to fruition, they're not really that different. And and so as long as I visualize them as this one whole, right, where if I was going to say, where, what do I do for a living? It's that I just, I work at the intersection of music technology and community engagement, right? And like all of those three things, one hand holds the other. And so more often than not, like if I'm consulting on a project over here, Right. And I, I am. I'm consulting on a studio build for a nonprofit in Boston right now. I'm also working on my own studio build for the new studios in Phoenix. Right. So in, in having conversations over here on this one side in order to facilitate that happening, I'm also having conversations and opening up opportunities for this other thing to happen. Right. And then maybe I'm creating an asset for like an educational asset, which has something to do with my creative work, like a, a video. Yeah. Right. I've done a performance and now I'm creating a tutorial video. I use those in my classrooms as well. So anytime I'm actually saying yes to something or doing something, it kind of has to take all three boxes because I need every single piece of this work to feed the, the larger whole. Otherwise, it's just completely inefficient. Right. So that's that's the only way I'm able to do it is if whatever I'm doing over here is somehow serving what I'm doing over here. And that way I can get more bang for my buck. And then I just, you know, I'm pretty motivated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that answer. That's, um, that's a fulfilling life. That's, that's, a, um, that's the way to maintain your creativity, stay productive, <laughs> keep the hustle going so you can afford to do all those things. Um, yeah. But I, I really appreciate that answer. I think that people will find that useful, both practical and, and aspirational. Um, 
So thank you for sharing that. I have to ask, because you started the conversation by telling me a little bit about um, some of the things you've been up to recently in terms of your job change and buying a home and things of that nature. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm so intrigued by the, um, by the job move during the pandemic. Um, were you being recruited before it started? Oh yeah. 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 So were you, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the mechanics of like the interviewing process, you know, had you, had you been mm -hmm. out to Phoenix a couple of times or did it all happen over, over Zoom and Skype? Like, can you, can you just talk me through that? Cause I, I find it so interesting that you're doing that now. I mean, it was insane. It was, it, the, the reality of it is actually much more complex because I had simultaneously been up for another position at Berkeley. And so at one point in time, I had been offered both. And one was in New York City, and then this other one was in Phoenix. So I knew either way that I was going to be moving. But, um, you know, I'd been recruited to apply for the position in Arizona. And, you know, it was like five days before we were supposed to go. I was supposed to come here to do the presentations and the interviews shed the stay-at-home order fell um and so you know we moved everything to zoom luckily i have a lot of experience teaching online so it wasn't really that much of a stretch for me and i felt like it went really well regardless and apparently it did since they ended up offering me the position i think you did all right um but it was right at that time when like the narrative between I think the, the the narrative of the entire world was shifting we're in this for the long haul here how what, what, what's the sustainability of anybody at this point in time, right? Was was in question. So sight unseen, we just decided, you know, life has changed and we're going to go with the flow here and move to a different place that's a lot cheaper to live with more opportunities for not only just me, but also my husband. And, you know, there was a lot of reasons why Arizona was appealing. Arizona State in particular was appealing. And so we just decided to do it. It was frightening. Uh, and then we had to move across country. You know, I have a two and a half year old son. This was really complicated to make the decision to leave, but then also to go, you know, it's like packing up all your stuff. We had to fly across the country. It was a crazy time, but everybody's going through it. You know? There was no way I was going to drive from Boston to Phoenix with a two and a half year old in oh, the car. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that element. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna do it so it sounds like you you're up so, for adventure yeah. but it has some limits <laughs> <laughs> as long as if it's my son's involved there are many limits yes yeah, yeah. well so just, and how, did, how did is he doing with the transition he's he's good you know like we were living in a small it was it was a great place but it was a third of the size of the place that we have here. Now we've got a backyard, you know, just simple things that people take for granted who live in places that are more spacious. <laughs> um, so in that way, I think he's, he's loving it, you know, and there are neighborhood kids, right? <laughs> things like that, where it's, it's like, that's not the way we were living. And we just got invited up to our neighbor's house yesterday to say hello to their children. And they have a two and a half year old and, I was like, oh, this was why. This is why we did this. So it's it's good. Yeah. I think he's into it. <laughs> it's great. And have you um have you been able to create through all of this process and change? And if so, has the nature of what you're creating changed at all? And if not, are you yearning to get back to it? So 
I've been doing a lot of creating, but maybe not in the artistic musical sense. Cause I've been, I've been creating systems, like systems for like, basically it's creating culture. You're like, how are we going to operate? Who are we going to operate with? And what are the results of choosing to operate in that manner? You know, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of creative work in that regard, which I think is really where I'm focused right now. And this is on, again, all sides of it. It's from the, the nonprofit side, the academia side, and then also just, you know, anything I do outside of that. It's like, how does this, how are we creating new ways of thinking and new ways of interacting that serve everybody? How can we be innovative and how can we build community? How can we be expressive and how can we leverage technologies? Again, like all those, those three things. So, you know, in that regard, I have been creating on overtime. It's just so much of that right now. Um, I very much miss making music right now. We were, you know, we were displaced for a while because we didn't have a home for some time. So we were living with my parents and not really like the most creative of environments. But part of part of this ASU gig is that, what is it, 20% of my time needs to be spent on creative endeavors because I'm a tenure track, you know, I'm a tenure track faculty member whose expectation is that at a certain point in time, I will go up for tenure based upon my creative output. So there's a lot of that pressure now, which I really didn't have at Berkeley. They don't, they don't make you be creative. It's just something you kind of have to do. And so now that that expectation's there, it's like, all right, I need to, I have to do this. This is now my job again. And that I love. You know, where it almost had to take this extracurricular role in my life where it's like you have to put the bread on the table, you have to keep the ship afloat, if you will, and then do music. Where now I'm like very specifically kind of shifting that to be more in the center. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really, um, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about needing to have the, um, the, the boxes all checked. And it seems like um, in a very organic way, your life is following that model of each of these areas uh, feeding and reinforcing each other. And if one has to fall to the background, another comes to the foreground and sort of compensates. It's a very impressive um, accomplishment. Um, when you talk about the, the sort of portfolio or body of work you create as part of your tenure track, what does that look like? like how do you, I guess, is there a consistency that is looked for how are you evaluated? How is your work evaluated? Is it just the fact that you did it? Is it a qualitative thing? Yeah, okay. I, I don't, I don't know how they're gonna. So this is my first rodeo in that regard. You know, I was already tenured at Berkeley or the equivalent thereof. Um, they don't use those terms, but I was already at that sort of like you're not going to get fired position. Uh, so I don't really know a lot about traditional academia in, in that, you know, I, I'm assuming that I'm going to have to put together some sort of proof <laughs> besides maybe a video of me, like, you know, doing my thing. But I, I, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about like, what are these things? I've been, I've been working on an installation from last year that was supposed to already have like happened. Right. And didn't get to happen because of the pandemic. And, and like the projects like that are really easy to sort of defend, I guess to use the, the, ter the technical term, because there's like so much documentation of the entire process being put together. And 
So I don't know how, you know, me making a visual album is going to uh, stand the test of voting member faculty people's <laughs> expectations, but I'm here for it. Let's do it. Yeah. When you talk about designing studios, at this point in time, are there, um, are we talking about live rooms and control rooms or are we primarily talking about like workstation and digital equipment, you know, what, what's, what's, a, what's a ground up studio look like at this point? That's a really good question. And actually, frankly, one I think more people should be asking themselves because there's a, there's a really, there's a strong undercurrent of elitism in studio build, right? And, and that's based upon like false scenarios that existed in the late 1990s, early 2000s that were like, oh yeah, the studio is a large, analog format console and it costs this much money and it, it takes this much education in order to operate it. Whereas those spaces today, like if you're going to go to New York and you go to uh, Premiere or Quad or any of these big studios, it is literally hip hop dudes placing their laptops <laughs> on these consoles and then plugging the aux cable in and working in the box. Right. Not to say that people don't record audio in a multi-tracked format because they absolutely do. But the assumption when somebody builds a new space is that this standard has to be met. But the reality of it is that very few users are actually prepared and able to make music in this way. So we are, in essence, creating spaces that are not user forward, right? Where it's like you make the user adapt to the space, whereas my ethos on this now is that we should really be assessing who are the users, how are they making music, and how can we, as people that are creating these spaces, facilitate them to do their job or, you know, their creative act? So, you know, I think that we need to make spaces that are functional, multifunctional in that way, where if you're spending the time in order to make a massive live room with many ISO booths, that, you know, when all those spaces aren't being used, those ISO booths can operate separately, you know, like we'll wire everything up with Dante or, you know, that we can operate multiple DAWs, that we buy technology that's not proprietary and that, you know, supports multi-systems because that's the reality of the, the nature of the business. So, you know, I, I think a lot about this, but people are just appalled at some of these, like, like I'm the Bernie Sanders of studio designs, like so progressive. They're like, what do you mean? We're not gonna put the Avid S6 in there. I'm like, yeah, cause A, you don't need it. And like, we could spend that money so wisely, but just because of these sort of, you know, hierarchical systems, we assume that this is how we have to operate, but it's not, it's not something that I subscribe to. And, you know, if anything, if I have to do anything with any space, it's always going to be about the people that are using it and not about the technology that's in that, in that space. So I don't know if that's my soapbox moment. <laughs> no, no, that, I, that's really an interesting line of pursuit because I think you're talking about a lot of things that intersect there. You, you talked about, the, you know, you used the word hierarchy and there is that notion of like the priesthood um, in audio engineering. So you have that element of like, um, it's almost like the apprenticeship model, if you will. And, you know, and it's like the keeper of the, of, of the microphone placement <laughs> um, and, and, and which, you know, which cable and which microphone into which endpoint yields the, the, the proper sound um, and things of that nature. But then um, you also have the fetish, the, the fetishization, if you will, of 
whether it's analog or the board or the way to do things. Um, and those two things together alone have such room for toxicity. Um, and then, um, and then you add in a generational component where, um, I can imagine the levels of snobbery that go on with, or, or you add in a, a racial component because of some of the people creating the music, all those things together are just compounding and compounding and compounding. But I love the example of sort of modularizing the rooms. That's such a great solution. You know, I think about, <laughs> this is probably an awful analogy, but I, I think about the problem of golf courses a lot, right? Like I drive by a golf course and I see the beautiful grass and the manicured lawns and the trees. And it's like, you know, in a way golf courses can be beautiful, but I can't just stroll onto it. You know, I'm a middle-aged white man. I can go most places. You know, I can't speak to, to, a lot of the other people that can't go to golf courses. And, but you know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a closed environment that is owned and controlled, but it's, it's, it's ultimately a wasted use of, of space for the public good. And I love the, um, I love the idea of the live room still being there, but not having to be um, a chapel. You know, mm -hmm. not being something that has to sit undisturbed when it's not being used for its intended purpose or changing what its intended purpose is. That I think that that is a bit of a Bernie Sanders of <laughs> of studio design moment. Um, and I think it's a very valuable one because it allows us to keep the best of the past without being enslaved to it. And I think that's important. That's the shit that I live for. You know, it's and when you think about music, before recording technologies existed, like it was, it was democratized. Like we all experienced it by being there, by being together, by participating in it. You know, like culturally music was just a part of the fabric of our lives in a completely different way than it is now. And then through the development and innovation of these tools, it's like become further and further away, right. From, you know, whether that's 16th century tonal harmony stuff, like having to know, certain things about how music functions to operate in like that whole patron system, you know, of classical composers, like even that's its own hierarchical system. And then with technology and like, people being in charge or having access, again, it's like this technology justice or music justice thing, you know, by shifting the way we think about things and creating systems to support it, we then again, democratize things because everyone's making music again now. You know, everybody's doing it on at home, on their laptops, on their cell phones, on their iPads. And, you know, that's happening with or without the people that are in power acknowledging it. So, you know, it's I think it's important that we we really just get behind it and and stop trying to push back and say, you don't belong in this space. You can't operate this space. Um, we can't change this space, you know, when when the reality of it is that we actually can and we should. Do you have the time or inclination these days to listen much? Are you still a consumer of music? Okay, so I have I have made the concerted effort that I need to start listening to popular music again because, because this is now part of my job. So if I'm going to be, you know, a leader in this space, then I should at least be aware of what's happening. Um, I don't really jive with a lot of stuff that's popular, I guess, depending on which way you define those terms. But um, 
I have to listen to so much music every week because I, I still teach for Berkeley online. So, you know, I'm listening to maybe 60 people's music a week. And a lot of that listening is exhausting, yeah. frankly. You know, it's like I, I probably do one or two hours of really intense listening per day that's just related to me helping other people with the work that they're doing. And I just don't have, I don't have this ear space <laughs> to, uh, to, to listen as much as I would like to. And, you know, for some people, music is wallpaper. You know, you're like cooking in the kitchen and then you put on your jams and you're drinking your wine and you're like, oh, this is so great. I just cannot, like if music is on and it's playing, I have to, I can't focus on other things because my entire person is involved in listening to the harmonic progression, like the timbral, you know, the, the frequency spectrum, the dynamics of it, the lyrical content of it, the rhyme scheme. Like there's so much for me to dissect and listen to now. Like the more you know, <laughs> really, the more there is to think about. And so it's it's become like a completely different thing for me now where I can't just sit and enjoy because I'm constantly in this cycle of analysis and understanding. So, you know, like my favorite sound is silence at this point. Um, and I, I don't really listen to music recreationally anymore. It's really become my job. Is... Uh... Do you have a mournfulness or a sentimentality about that or is that okay? Yeah, no, it makes me, it makes me, definitely makes me sad. Um, I just, I was just having this conversation with my husband about like how we're going to approach screen time with our child, right? And that was never, like, screen time wasn't a thing when I was a kid. You know, there was no, luckily I, I had a very analog childhood <laughs> um, and I remember just spending like so, so much of those formative times for me were about sitting in my room, listening to Stevie Wonder records and like singing along and harmonizing and like pretending and visualizing. Right. And like, those are the things that made me me um, because I was bored and I, this is, you know, music was that escape. That's what I did. So you know, it's like, I'm not as bored as I used to be. Obviously, I've got a lot more going on. But you know, what I wouldn't give for more free time and more headspace to tap back into that version of myself that I'm constantly afraid is just <laughs> slipping further and further away from from the person that I am today. Yeah. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, ha I have not listened yet but i've sort of made the commitment to myself that at some point this week i'm gonna have to listen to the taylor swift album oh yes um, me too <laughs> yeah I'm, i would be very curious to hear what you have to say about it not only just on the the substance of the songwriting but it, it sounds like it's a i don't know it sounds like it's an album that would generate a lot of um a lot of thoughtfulness from you in, in, in many regards. It sounds like it's, it's technically beautiful. It sounds like it's lyrically beautiful. It sounds like it's well-crafted, like everything that I'm, I'm kind of enjoying reading about it without listening to it yet. Um, <laughs> so it's so, it's so fun to watch everybody fawn over it. Um, yeah. but if it's, if it's half as good as the, um, as all the writing about it, um, 
it sounds like she's fully harnessed her capabilities and, and, and channeled them in a, in a very profound way. So I'm, I'm very intrigued and, and I'm sort of holding out to listen to it because I know you can only hear it the first time once. <laughs> we all start cooking and drink some wine and listen to the new T-Swift record tonight. <laughs> who would have thought? Who would have thought that, that that would be something that, that would actually be entertaining? But I have to thank you, Aaron. It's really it's great to talk with you and congratulations on your role. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Aaron. And thank you to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And while we're thanking people, thank all of you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to get your podcasts from. Please keep your feedback coming. You can reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe. And as always, stay in touch. <laughs>